You're listening to Ask Nurse Alice, presented by Nurse.org, where Alice Benjamin combines no-nonsense advice with thought-provoking interviews. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Ask Nurse Alice podcast, the show where we talk about everything and anything nursing and healthcare related. I'm your host, Alice Benjamin, clinical nurse specialist, family nurse practitioner, and chief nursing officer here at Nurse.org. Now, today's topic is inspired by a recent incident that I encountered at the hospital while I was working. As many of you guys know, critical care emergency medicine is my jam, and I do critical care transport for patients. And so the reason why this was of importance to me is because although it seems very simple, it was something that was very important. And that is in reference to knowing what your patient's code status is. And I think in the nursing community, there is this kind of general unwritten rule that if you don't know your patient's code status, they're full code until we know otherwise. And while I get it, right, you have to, you know, do everything you can to keep someone alive because then you always have the opportunity to take them off of life support. Whereas if you don't do anything, the patient dies, you can't bring them back. So I get it. However, I don't get it because all we need to do is ask. All we need to do is have a conversation with either the patient, provided they have capacity, or talking to the uh, designated healthcare decision maker and ask them, what would you like for your loved one? Or what is it that your loved one would want in the situation if their heart were to stop or their breathing were to stop or be troubled, would you like us to intervene? So. When we talk about code status, that's really what that is. That is the type of emergent treatment that we would perform if someone's heart stops or they stopped breathing. So when we talk about code status, it's important to know it. Now, I will say this. Usually in the ICU, we know folks' code status already because, you know, they've already been admitted. We've had probably had at least um, some time to contact family or maybe to even talk to the patient to find out what their code status is. Sometimes it's not as much of an issue, but let me say this, conditions change, people deteriorate, there's change of conditions that may warrant a change in the code status. And that's always a delicate topic as well. But in the emergency room where I've worked, sometimes people are coming in with, you know, EMS or fire, they're still wrapped up in their blankets from bed, they got their, their pajamas on, maybe they've had a change in condition, there's no one else with them. So we don't have anyone to make a decision. So the ER doctors operate in their best interest. And so that situation makes it a lot harder, especially when people are coming in for emergencies, they're coming in with heart issues, they're coming in with problems breathing. And so we have to respond quickly. Now, I think there is some compassion for being in those situations and just not having time or access to anyone in an emergency situation, receiving it that way. However, let me back things up a little bit and explain what prompted me, inspired me to talk about this. So As a critical care transport nurse, I was called along with my EMTs to transport a patient from hospital A to hospital B. It was a very small community hospital to a trauma center. And the patient was a 95-year-old woman. She looks pretty frail to me. I was told that she was full code and that her medical history included coronary artery disease, peripheral vascular disease, recent fall two weeks ago, 
chronic kidney disease and cataract surgery. So those are the things that I was told in report. And that the reason why I was picking her up from this small emergency room is because she needed to go to a trauma center uh, admitted to the ICU for a traumatic hemothorax. And they told me she was full code. Here's the thing. Patient was alert and oriented, seemed very tired, was in a lot of pain, was now on some oxygen. She didn't use oxygen at home. And let me say this. I was picking her up with the diagnosis of traumatic hemothorax. And this woman also had some fractures to the ninth and 10th left ribs. She had a moderate to large left pleural fluid. What they suspected was, you know, the acute hemothorax. And I told moderate to large and the ER doctor said it's about 50%. And then I kind of looked at mine, it's 50% large, you know, hemothorax. She's already on oxygen. She seems like she's, she's with it, but she's on the lethargic side, but he was adamant that the patient was hemodynamically stable and that the chest tube could wait till she got the trauma center. Now I have my, my two cents about what could have, should have happened, but you know, this is how I was receiving the patient. And my role is to pick up the patient and move transport. We're like, we're like the SWAT team. We come in, pick up the patient, stealth mode, boom, go to the next and drop the patient off like seamlessly. But anyways, patient was now on some oxygen. I learned that she had the uh, traumatic hemothorax, which they felt was related to some of her recent falls from her assisted living. And for those of you who may not know, the traumatic hemothorax is usually caused by some type of blunt injury, usually rib fractures, um, and they cause damage and ruptures to some of the pulmonary vessels and blood builds up in the pleural space which can significantly impact the lung's ability to expand, which can lead to some respiratory issues as well as some hemodynamic issues, especially if that pleural effusion begins to worsen and push up and against other organs in the chest. Now, I get reports, I listen, and then I do my own independent assessment. So I'm doing my assessment, heard some muffled heart sounds, which by the way, when I looked on the physician's documentation, no mention of any muffled heart sounds. Nurse said she didn't hear any muffled heart sounds. And so I'm concerned because that may also be an indicator of some cardiac issues. Maybe there's some cardiac tamponade, some fluid or blood in the pericardial space that might be new from the time when they last assessed the patient to when I assessed them. Blood pressure was holding stable, but the heart rate was picking up. It, she was, you know, in the low 100s. Was it pain? Which, by the way, they didn't give her anything for pain. Go figure, you have rib fractures, but maybe they didn't want to suppress her respiratory. But anyways, I have this lady who's here from some traumatic issues. Things look like, you know, they could they could go south very soon. And I, I was going to have to spend about 20 minutes in the back of an ambulance with this patient, getting her from point A to point B. So one of the first things I asked about, because she was 95 and she was in this predicament and I was trying to anticipate and plan ahead, I said, she's full code. And they were like, yeah, she's full code. And then so after I do my assessment, I go and I look through the paperwork to make sure that we have everything, scans, EKG, um, H&P, you know, all of the things that we need that should be in the medical record for the next facility to take over care. I'm going through and I see there's some assisted lifting papers and there is a, an order in the list that says it's in the middle of the page, kind of mixed in with some of her other medications and stuff, which by the way, because I was looking at her meds, I knew she had other medical diagnoses, but that's a whole nother story. But it said DNR, 
And so I looked at the nurse and I said, I see a DNR status from the assisted living. Was there a change in that order? Was there a conversation that occurred? And the nurse was like, I have no idea. We were told she was full code from the get go. We never saw that. But you had this paperwork with you, but you never saw it. Go figure. So I said, well, I need to clarify this because I'd like to honor her wishes because of her situation in the event her heart were to stop or she were to stop breathing. I need to know what to do. Do I need to resuscitate and go on bypass to the closest hospital? Or are we going to let the natural cause take its course? And so they looked quite honestly, just kind of stuck, like they didn't know what to do. And so I just looked to the physician in the emergency room and I said, Hey, excuse me, doctor, there is an order here for DNR. There's a physician's name here. Um, did you have a conversation with her or can I honor these orders? And he was like, oh, I didn't even know that was there. No one told me. No, I didn't have a conversation with her. And so he changed the documentation and now she's DNR. Now the nurse said to me, well, you could have just asked her, listen, you've had this patient for a good 12 hours. Don't come up here and tell me that I can just ask the patient. I've literally only been here for 10, 15 minutes and I've brought it all together when you had her for 12. Okay. I'm not going to beef with the nurse. But what I'm saying is it frustrates me that we sometimes don't take the few minutes to do some exploratory work that can literally change the trajectory of someone's life. That was so important. And that was all in her assisted living paperwork that came with her when she first arrived. No one looked at it at all. No one, not the doctor, not the nurses. They were just sticking it in the chart because she came with it. But all they had paid attention to was all the new information that they started doing there, the labs they did there, the CT scans that they did there, the EKG that they did there, everything was just there, which I get it. You know, you want to get the latest and greatest information what's happening now, but it's very important to go back and look at the patient's charts so you can discover if there's other things going on with the patient. I saw that she had, you know, she had chronic anemia. She had been on iron. She had cholesterol issues. That's all cholesterol medication and some other things going on. Now, mind you, in the setting of an acute issue, a traumatic hemothorax, maybe that's not as important right now, but I'll tell you her co-status is important, extremely important. And another thing is the physician didn't put in a chest tube. And I was concerned about that. And he said, oh, well, she's hemodynamically stable. It's not needed. It can wait. Listen, if a patient is full code and presents that way, my concern is that if we don't put a chest tube in to evacuate that bleeding, it's going to cause problems. But he was willing to wait for the next, to go to the next facility. And you can see how now having all this information, how that may have changed, how I would have handled the patient once in the back of the rig. Okay. So now we know that she's someone who does not wish to have resuscitation. That's important. You got to know the code status. Okay. And as I mentioned, the code status is the type of emergent treatment that we would take um, when it comes to someone's heart stopping or their breathing stopping. Now, while there was an order, I also started, I was looking for a POLST, P-O-L-S-T. Some of you may have heard that. That is an acronym. It stands for Physician's Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Now, a POLST is different from a DNR. A DNR is just the code status. Once the heart stops or the breathing stops, this is what you're going to do, what you're not going to do. Full code or do not resuscitate. A POLST is a portable medical orders for usually those who are seriously ill or frail. Now, that's important to have these. They're a set of medical orders and they do include 
resuscitation information, but it includes so much more information than that. When you look at a pulse, it's actually, these orders are an approach to end of life planning based on conversations between the patients, the loved ones and healthcare professionals. So it is based on the patient's values, their beliefs, their goals for care after, you know, after they presented, takes into account the patient diagnoses, their prognosis, treatments, alternatives, benefits, and burdens to life-sustaining treatments. And basically a pulse recognizes what the patient's wishes are for allowing a natural death to occur. So it is not having a pulse and allowing someone to have comfort care is not the same as killing them. It's not the same as ignoring them and letting whatever happen. You're still going to provide care, but just in the event that the patient's heart stops or stops breathing, we know how to resuscitate them. In the event that they have issues with breathing, it lets us know, do they want to be intubated or maybe they just want positive airway pressure? Do they want long-term tube feedings to help sustain nutrition? Do they not want them or do they only want to try it for a shortened period of time? So this documentation actually allows people to make those decisions. It's actually broken up in a couple sections. So section A, CPR status. Are they going to be fully resuscitated? So do we attempt CPR or do we not attempt CPR? Section B, that's where we talk about medical intervention. So as I mentioned, full treatment is where the primary goal is prolonging life by all medically effective means. So we're going to intubate them. We're going to do cardioversion. You know, we're going to do advanced airway interventions, those type of things. Or do they just maybe want selective treatment, meaning that the goal for treating medical conditions while avoiding burdensome measures. So maybe they want medical treatment, but they only want medications like IV antibiotics or IV drugs, IV fluids. They don't want to be intubated, um, but they're open to some positive airway pressure, right? Um, But we generally avoid ICU type interventions. Also, if they're actually out of the hospital, that's also an opportunity to request that the person not be transferred to the hospital, that they continue this way at home. And there's also the section for comfort focused treatment. Maybe the goal, the primary goal is for maximizing comfort. So they just want pain management, medications, oxygen, maybe suctioning to keep the airway clear. So breathing is easier for them, but they don't want any medically invasive, intrusive type of treatments. Okay. And then there's section C where I talked about nutrition. So maybe they're okay with long-term artificial treatment, like feeding tubes, or TPN. Maybe they just want to try it for a shortened period of time, or maybe that they don't want any type of artificial means of nutrition or tube feeds. So that's something else. And then there's also the section of signatures. So do they have an advanced directive? Do they have a healthcare agent? These are all things that are important to discuss. And it's signed by your healthcare provider, whether a physician or practitioner or a physician associate. So it's a pulse. Pulse are very important. While you're in the hospital, if you realize your patient doesn't have a pulse, maybe there's an opportunity to have a pulse created while they're there. So when they go home, they have one or make sure that they talk to their primary care provider about creating a pulse. So they have one. EMS are trained to respond and look for this pulse document on refrigerators and on nightstands. So in the event they arrive to someone and they can look at the pulse to see what the patient's wishes are. And then they, as EMS staff, they can act accordingly. Something that's very important. I mean, knowing your patient's 
code status, their medical decisions and wishes, super important. You know, by having this document, knowing what this information is, you can make the best decisions for that patient. You are going to save time. You're going to save money. You're going to save resources. You're going to save a lot of pain, heartache, and tears by doing this. The worst thing you could do is have a patient who is DNR. Maybe their heart stops. You initiate a code blue. You guys do everything. And the patient's family comes and they're intubated, sedated on multiple drifts in the ICU and just doing very poorly. Now the family is faced with the decision of withdrawing life support. Do you know how difficult of a decision that can be for a family when they could have allowed their loved one to pass naturally? Now they're going to carry this guilt of, I had to take my loved one off of life support. Not an easy decision to make as someone who has had to take their loved one off of life support. Not an easy decision. It tears me up when I hear stories like this. And so I thought it was really important for me to share this experience and share this story with you guys. So just as a gentle reminder to please take a couple minutes, take a few minutes to look that up in the patient's chart. I know y'all got a lot going on. I know you're overstaffed, overworked, but I promise you doing this little bit of footwork ahead of time will make your job a lot easier and really honor the patient and their best wishes. I think one of the most stressful things that works are code blues. We all would love to avoid them. We'd love to um, make sure that we're honoring our patient's wishes. So if your patient is uh, deteriorating, but you know that they are DNR, at least you can provide them with some comfort and some dignity, notify the family and allow them to enjoy this person as they continue to make their transition and pass. Versus you're going to spend all this time and energy trying to intervene and resuscitate someone who does not want to be resuscitated. Don't do it. Please, please don't do it. Please take the, the time to know what your patient status is. And that whole thing of, oh, they're full code unless I know otherwise. I can understand in some situations why you may think that. But if you have access to the patient's chart, look very quickly. You know, they're from a skilled nursing facility. You know, they're from a, an assisted living. You know, call their daughter, call their next of kin, whoever the decision maker is. That's one thing. If your patient doesn't have the capacity to make these decisions, it's very important that you know who the decision maker is. It's not just whatever the doctor wants to do. It's really what the patient wants. And so it's very important to reach out and ask who is the decision maker and what is it that they would like to do and initiate that conversation if your physician, nurse practitioner, or PA hasn't done so yet. That way we can all be on the same page. But it's important, again, as nursing students, as nurses, advanced practice nurses, knowing the patient's code status, trying to see if they have a physician's order for life-sustaining treatment, a post, and honoring their wishes. And this isn't to say that people don't change their minds. I've definitely been in situations when someone's DNR and then at the last minute, the, the kids are like, do everything. And in those situations, they can be very touch and go, very emotional, but we need to have these conversations. And oftentimes, unfortunately, we have these conversations after someone has coded. Really, we need to swing this pendulum and have this conversation with people while they are healthy, while they are well, and in the best mind to make decisions. So I wish this was the only story that I had to share about, you know, this type of misinformation about code status, but it isn't. But it's one that I had most recently and some one that was very profound because the lady did not do well. I did get her from point A to point B. But as soon as we rolled up in the ICU, she began to deteriorate. Blood pressure was dropping, started to desaturate, and obviously 
it was related to the worsening hemothorax as well as, as I mentioned earlier, I was hearing some muffled heart sounds and it sounded like there could have possibly been some fluid in the pericardial space leading to tamponade. So I was just transporting the patient after I endorsed care to the ICU and the intensivist. It was out of my care. She was out of my care. Um, and I can only hope that they honored her wishes. I was very clear in the report. I showed them the order and I don't know what happened next, but I'm hopeful that they did do the right thing and they honored that code status, which I believe that they did. And that's one of the most important parts of handoff, making sure you convey that important information because we all want to do what's right by the patient. We really, really do. So guys, that's, you know, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. I really enjoy sharing these gems with you all. I know some of y'all have been practicing forever. And then some of you are new grads. Some of you are new nurses. Some of you are nursing students. Um, but I think we can all learn from one another and, you know, just want to send gentle reminders out there of how we can, sometimes we get really busy, but some of the things that we definitely need to remember uh, and bring to the forefront of our care so that we can just be better nurses for our patients. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I really enjoy um, doing these for you. And thanks to nurse.org for allowing me to share this information with you. Guys, if you haven't already, make sure to visit nurse.org. Check out their website. Tons of great information there. And there's also a page there for the podcast. And you can go through and look at the different topics, listen to the different podcasts. It's tons of great information for you. Make sure to rate, review, leave a comment, subscribe, all those good things to the podcast so you don't miss another episode. And if you think of something that you want to talk about or want to hear, please let me know. You can email me at nursealice at nurse.org. We'd love to hear from you. And hey, follow me on social media at Ask Nurse Alice. So until next time, guys, make good choices, be kind to one another, and live well, my friends. Thanks for listening to Ask Nurse Alice. Visit nurse.org for nursing career, education, and community resources.